This episode is brought to you by the generosity of our listeners. If people have historically been a high performer, people become incompetent because they're bored. That's Whitney Johnson, author, speaker, and one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates. Along with Armin Asadi. We're so glad you're joining us today to put your faith to work and your, bring your bold ideas to life. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. And that's what we do, right, Armin? That's right. And we have another epic guest on today. Man, I... I mean, I'm going to say this probably five more times throughout the uh, interview today, but I am a total groupie. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. We are speaking with Whitney Johnson. Uh, she is an expert in corporate innovation through personal disruption. She is recognized, get this, as one of the top 50 leading business thinkers in the world. She's the author of three books, Dare, Dream, Do, Disrupt Yourself, and her latest book coming out, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. Uh, releasing on May 1st. She has contributed to the Harvard Business Review. She's a LinkedIn influencer. She was formerly an institutional investor ranked analyst for eight consecutive years, including at Merrill Lynch. That's no small deal. (laughs) (laughs) She has worked with the famed Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School and co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund. And Armin, she has her own podcast, the Disrupt Yourself podcast. I know, and I got to listen to it because I've only listened to like one episode, but exactly, I might become a regular all of a sudden. You will, you will. <laughs> Trust me, as a groupie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she got me. All right. We are so delighted to have Whitney Johnson on the Bold Idea podcast. Welcome, Whitney. Welcome back, I guess I should say, because you were with us on the Reinventure Me episodes and I uh, want to just say how delighted we are to have you once again joining us on our show. Thank you for having me. What a what a what a treat! Now we are uh, going to talk about your new book, but before we do, you are all about personal disruption. Tell us about what that is, and tell us about your own journey and kind of how you got into this whole business of personal disruption. All right. So before we do personal disruption, let's talk about what disruption is, and then we'll build on that. So disruption Perfect. is. At its simplest, a silly little thing that takes over the world. So you think about how um, the telephone disrupted the telegraph, how the automobile disrupted the horse and buggy, um, Netflix disrupted Blockbuster, and now we've got Uber, which is disrupting yellow caps. So these things that start out, they seem kind of silly, and then they just take over the world. So that's disruption as it applies to a product. Now, personal disruption is how you take these ideas and make them meaningful to you. Um, And so you start at the bottom of the ladder, you climb to the top, and then you jump to the bottom of a new ladder, like the children's game shoots and ladders. Quick example of personal disruption is Lady Gaga. If you think about her career in 2008, she goes straight to the top of the charts. And then for an encore, she actually jumps to the bottom of a new ladder, 
one that could easily have put off her fan base. She she collaborates with Tony Bennett on a jazz album. Mm. She does a Sound of Music tribute, so The Hills Are Alive with Lady Gaga at the Oscars, and then she does uh, produces a country album. But The Jump, we all know, kind of at least intuitively, that it paid off because her performance at the Super Bowl a year ago had the largest music audience ever. So disruption, silly little thing that takes over the world. When you pursue a disruptive course, your odds of success are six times higher. Personal disruption is how you take these ideas, apply them to your own life so that your um, career path, your life is six times more successful. All right. So how do you tell whether something is truly disruptive or just a, a flip of a switch and a change of ideas? And or obnoxious. Mm, great question. <laughs> yeah. So um, disruptive innovation, it, it, it's, it actually follows a framework. So the disruptor, it secures a foothold at the low end of a market. And initially, its products are inferior, like Toyota in the 60s. Um, and its position is very weak. And the incumbent could have crushed them. In this case, it was General Motors. They could have crushed them like a cockroach, but they didn't. Market leaders, they rarely bother because, of course, it's just a silly little thing. So why don't we just go after bigger, faster, better Cadillac? The bad news, of course, um, or the good, depending on who you are, is that once a disruptor gains a foothold, it too is motivated by bigger, faster, better. And in this case, it was Lexus. What's interesting when it comes to personal disruption is that Whereas with disruption of products, there's actually, you know, Toyota disrupting General Motors um, or now Tesla disrupting General Motors. With personal disruption, you are the incumbent. So you are effectively disrupting yourself. Um, so you asked me the question, what does this look like in my life? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say um, the biggest, probably most, no well, when you get married, you disrupt yourself, right? You disrupt yep. your current version of you to- I think kids um, are by definition disruptive, right? Absolutely. So marriage <laughs> is disruptive. Yep. Um, having children is disruptive because you you basically make yourself a very silly little thing when you have a child because you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. Yep. Um, in my career also, I, I was disrupted at one point when I was working on Wall Street and there was a merger and my boss was fired. So I was moved from banking to equity research. So sometimes you disrupt yourself, but sometimes you're disrupted. In either case, you can grow. Um, a big major one for me was when I was now working as an equity analyst on Wall Street. I was um, an award-winning analyst, very well-regarded, and decided to leave that job and become an entrepreneur. I just walked away from it. And that's oftentimes what disruption looks like. You're, there's some sort of either prestige or status status or security and you walk away from it and people think you've absolutely lost your mind um, but it, that decision to become a silly little thing to take a step back you believe at some point can be a slingshot forward and and that's why you disrupt yourself is because you believe that the future will be better because you took that step back than it would be if you continued on the path that you're on Okay, now I'm not sure you cover this in your new book, but um, let's talk about the faith angle to that. So when when you're kind of sensing that you're far enough down that you're at this point where some some change is needed, how does how does how did you find at least for yourself how faith might have worked into your assessment of what you should do and when you should do it? Yeah, uh, I have a, actually a really um, powerful example of that. So. When um, I, I just alluded to it a minute ago, so it, it was 2000, let's see what year was it, 1996, 
And I was working. Yeah, 1996. So 20 years ago, um, I had just, um, we had just had our oldest child. And this is when uh, our bank was acquired. I was working at, um, where was I working at? Smith Barney at the time. Our bank was acquired and my boss was fired. So there's, you know, as it always is the case, there was shakeup. And I was moved but really I was shoved into equity research. And, but, but what happened, and I still remember exactly where I was sitting. We were living in New York City. Our son was probably like a month old. And they said, okay, you've got an option to move into equity research, which I didn't want to do because if you worked on Wall Street, you know that like moving from banking to research is like a huge step back. It's like basically flying a fighter jet and then flying a cargo plane. But I remember sitting in my in our our small little apartment living room and having this very strong spiritual impression that um that I saw kind of doors opening up in my mind of possibilities and opportunities that could open up because I took this step back and moved into equity research. It was just so clear to me that this was the right decision. Mm-hmm. And for me that was very much a spiritual prompting and and um, nudge that I do this. And it turned out to be that this job for me anyway was a career maker. And so that is certainly one of those instances where faith was a very important determinant in terms of me making that decision to disrupt myself. Yeah. And you had to have those times of your personal reflection in order to seize that, right? Otherwise, you'd probably just go off and do what you normally do. What keeps people from staying stuck in the status quo? How do they get out of that, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, I think one of the th- reasons that meditation apps like Headspace have become so popular, which I actually use, is that it gives us this opportunity to be still and to be quiet. And, you know, I, every morning when I first wake up, I listen to scriptures as a starting point. I'll listen to a talk by a spiritual leader that's, that I find sort of kind of companion pieces um, and try to make time to journal and to meditate so that my brain can be open to ideas and open to those promptings. Because as we all know, is that God does not talk to us in, um, he, you know, there, there's that wonderful scripture in the Old Testament that they you know, there was the thunder and there was the lightning, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but God wasn't in any of those places. Right. He was finally in that still small voice. And yes. so it's a matter of being quiet enough and being receptive enough to those just flashes of inspiration, those ideas, um, and, and listening to them. And then importantly, being willing to act on them. There's one of our church leaders who says he wants to be a spiritual first responder. And I love that image oh, yeah. of like a firefighter or you know, an ambulance or any kind of EMT of like, when we get that idea, that spiritual prompting, do we act on it? Mm -hmm. The idea of an S curve fits into both your, both of your books, actually all of your books, Whitney, tell us about what the S curve is. Yeah. So the S curve um, was uh, popularized by the sociologist E.M. Rogers in 1962. And it was um, used initially to help you figure out how quickly an idea and innovation would be adopted. And we used this a lot in um, when I was investing with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School to help us figure out how quickly 
um, a product would be adopted and therefore did it make sense to buy or sell the stock at, at that given time. Well, one of the big ahas that I had was that we could use this S-curve to help us understand learning, to help us understand the psychology of change. And so if you can picture in your mind for just a minute an S, uh, it looks a lot like a wave. At the bottom of that S, um, whenever you start a new project or you start a new role, when you start any new endeavor, um, you're at the bottom of an S and a lot of time is going to pass initially and it feels like nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Um, and so that's your period of inexperience where you're just trying to figure things out. And knowing that, knowing that it looks like nothing's happening helps you avoid discouragement. And then typically after six months to a year on a new project, you're going to enter or hit the knee of that curve where you see the back of the S. And it's actually very steep at that point where you don't have to do very much and a lot's happening. And this is the, the exciting part of the curve where all your neurons are firing, where you're feeling quite competent. And with that comes confidence. And then at the top of the curve, you... It, again, it's flat, so you're you've mastered what you're doing. You're very good at it, but because your brain is no longer um, firing off these feel good, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. You can get bored, and so this actually the top of the curve is is the real danger zone for us because we get bored, and when we get bored, we either stop trying um, or we get pushed off the curve. So one of the two can happen. And so um, so what I what my thesis is is that every single person including you, including everyone who's listening to this podcast, is on a learning curve in their life, in their work, and then your organizations are a collection of those learning curves. And you can optimize for innovation, you can optimize for managing through change by um, managing where your people are on their learning curves. Yeah. Now, I imagine for each of us, we all have multiple learning curves, right? So like if I'm trying to pick up a uh, physical fitness as I am. I mean, I've got a steep learning curve there. And if I'm, uh, you know, proficient in some area, maybe at the top end of that curve, right? So we have different learning curves for different things in our own lives. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And your life is one big learning curve. And then you've got lots of little learning curves um, throughout life. And as you said, you can have a learning curve. I mean, for example, if you've, you could be at the top of your learning curve, with your domain expertise, but maybe at the low end of the learning curve in your current job, you could be at the low end of the learning curve in your current job, but the, you know, in the sweet spot of your curve in your marriage or as a parent. So there's lots of different, um, like you said, Larry, different learning curves that we can be on concurrently. What yes. percentage of time should people spend in each area of the S curve, in your opinion? That's a great question, Armin. Um, so if you map the learning curve against the 10,000 hour rule, you're going to be at the low and assume you're working 40 hours a week, you're going to be at the low end of a learning curve for six months to a year. And then you're going to be in the sweet spot for two to three years. And then you don't want to be at the high end for longer than about a year because you really will start dialing it in because your brain's just chunking everything and there's it's like a jigsaw puzzle that's almost done. You're like, yeah, it's boring now. I know what pieces do. So that that gives you a rough or approximation. And if you look, if you start looking at people's careers, you'll find, and, and even in life, you'll find that every three to four years they they start to reset and do something new. Yeah, so you get you get you get to this unsettled place at three or four years. I, I might be a little slow. I found it was seven for me, but 
<laughs> well, you know what, though, I would say, Larry, is uh, that y- you probably weren't. It's just that, well, you might have been, but you probably weren't because what can happen is uh, if, when you're in that sweet spot, sometimes you can get really interesting stretch assignments that allow you to extend out the length of that. Curve. Oh, I see. Sure. Yeah. And, and I imagine if you have other areas in your life where you're getting that kind of uh, stretching too, that might help mitigate your tolerance for an area that may not be stretching you as much. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, sometimes people will say, well, this person's been in this role for a long time and, you know, it seems like they're at the top of curve. And I'm like, well, are they doing a good job? And they're like, yeah, they're doing a great job. And so then the answer is, well, they're still in the sweet spot. And to your point, sometimes, I mean, we can only take so many low end of the learning curves at any given time. So if you're really like trying to figure something out in one area of your life, then you probably want to be in the sweet spot or even at the high end for a while in another area of your life because you want to, you know, I talk about load balancing those curves in terms of a team, but you also want to load load balance the curves in terms of your own life. Okay. You mentioned boredom, right? So when you get to the high end of the curve, what are other telltale signs that we should be on the lookout that maybe we've outstayed our welcome on our curve and we need to jump to a new one? Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned boredom. You can also have um, the quick, quick back of the envelope way of like, have I been doing the exact same thing for four or five years now? That's a signal. Another signal is if you find yourself saying I've paid my dues. Um, When you say I paid my dues, what are you saying there? Yeah, so there's a sense when we start saying something like, well, I've paid my dues, that is a signal to us that we're starting to feel like we have done what we need to do and we're at the top of our learning curve. So we should just get to kind of relax a little bit. Okay, so almost an entitlement kind of mentality sinks in. Yeah, there's an element of entitlement, which can happen even when you're not at the high end of the curve. But I think that you definitely find, uh, I know I found it with myself when I get to the top of a curve, I'm like, oh, I think it's okay if I just relax a little bit because, you know, I've paid my dues. Is that kind of the Peter principle? I I would actually take on the Peter principle a little bit here, to be honest, because I think that, um, you know, the Peter principle is where people go to the level of their incompetence, right? That's that's what it is. But I I would actually argue that people become, if people have historically been a high performer, people become incompetent because they're bored. I would actually flip it on its head. Okay. There's a lot of bored people out there. I saw, you know, we reviewed a, 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 a report from, I don't know, one of the major consulting groups that said something like, you know, 60% or 75% of the American work, workforce is unengaged. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, the, the data that we're looking at is um, 30, 33% are engaged. And so then what is that? 60, 67% are yeah. disengaged. And so I think that, that um, there's it goes to the point it's because they're not learning on the job. And so this book, Build an A-Team, is really about how do you as a manager structure your team so that um, you've got people who are continually learning and in the process, but you're not doing it just because it's nice for them to be learning, even though that is nice, but there's a business case to be made for as you optimize where people are in the curves and have a plan for them to learn, it also is going to be beneficial to you as a team leader and and as well as to your company. I have to imagine what you're saying is truly disruptive to almost every company I know of and even nonprofit or church or whatever it might be because the hiring process typically is 
let's find the person or the individual that is the expert at this one thing and put them in that position so that they can do the thing that they're an expert at where there is no learning curve. They're kind of there to teach everyone else and manage everyone else. So how do companies uh, respond or react to what you're saying since their hiring process is probably completely opposite of what you're saying? That's right. In many cases it is. And, and, and you know, what's interesting about that, Armin, is that when you're Working with freelancers, it's okay to want to hire someone at the top of the learning curve. Um, you just you when you're hiring people at the top of the learning curve and you're not mixing it up for them at all. So there are instances where so the, there are exceptions. For example, if you've got you know um, um, an aerospace scientist, they've got to stay in that domain their whole career. But you can still mix it up. Like for example, you can put them on different projects. You can ha- have them different team configurations. You can give them a new boss because, like every time you get a new boss, you're actually in some ways jumping to a new curve. There are different things that you have to learn. Um, so, so I would say. Um, understand that when you hire people at the top of the curve, you do that at your own risk. And that's part of the right reason why people are so disengaged. Because once you jump to a new curve and it's the same thing you've always been doing, it'll take you about six months to get the lay of the land. But after that, um, you're going to you're gonna be bored. And so then you, you as a manager, that's a risk that you're taking. Um, if you're willing to hire for potential, not for proficiency, then you've got an advantage. You know what's interesting, though, since we're having this conversation about faith? In my church, we have a lay ministry. I guess lots of churches do, but our church in particular, we have a lay ministry. And so every three or four years, people get a new calling every few few years. Like they're they're automatically disrupted. So mm. one, one um, year, someone might be leading the singing with the children, um, you know, that are ages five to 12. And then three years later, they might be teaching the women um, or three or three years later, they might be the, the clerk that manages all the finance finances for the, um, for the congregation. So, so there are instances where you know, at least in my particular faith, where that disruption takes place. Um, and I, I I think it does make a big, you know, this is like a big aha that I had after I'd written the book. I'm like, oh my goodness, we do this in our church. Yeah, you see it and right so, in action. Yeah, and so I do think that, um, and what I have seen is that people, we are continually growing. Like I was teaching women in my church and now I teach 17-year-old girls. Totally different learning curve for me because it's a very different um, group of, you know, mm-hmm. group of people. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, that's good. Now, getting back to the, 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 the idea of what you're proposing that leaders look for in hiring people, as you were talking, Whitney, I was, I was thinking about, you know, we often talk in our businesses about figuring out the lifetime value of a customer. And what it sounds like you're almost asking leaders to do is to consider the lifetime value of an employee. Am I understanding I that, that right? Yes, you are. I love how you framed that. Absolutely. So if Absolutely. that so if that's the case, then then you got this challenge as Armin pointed out, because most leaders are looking at how they can map to their business requirements today and not necessarily taking the long view of how that of building the competency in their team over time and keeping everybody at the highest level of of um excitement or engagement on the S curve, which is I think what you're proposing, right? It is. So here's the question I have. Now, how does a leader in looking at a new candidate discern whether they have the expansive potential, I think you describe it, rather than just mere proficiency that they might be looking for? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And you know what, it's something I think I need to do more work on. um, Because I know what the answer is, but I don't know how to figure that out yet. Um, And the answer is, does this person have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset? And so then the question I would ask myself, and I'm I suspect there are ways to ferret this out, is to how do you um, gauge whether or not this person has a growth or a fixed mindset? And so I, I suspect um, there are ways to ask, you know, like a battery of questions or even a test you could take to find out, does this person think, you know, their their level of intelligence is fixed or do they think it's um, growth? Because you can ask them that question and everybody's always going to say, yes, oh, yes, yeah, yes, totally. yes, yes, growth mindset. Yep. But one of the ways I actually think now that we're riffing, I think you can determine that is to look at how they deal with failure. Um, And I think that's, we actually have this disruptive strengths indicator that looks at how comfortable people are with failure. I think to the extent that people feel a lot of shame around failure, I think to the extent that they're not comfortable taking a step back to grow, um, those are indications of a fixed mindset. Whereas if someone is able to make a mistake, look at the ROI on that mistake. What did we learn as a consequence of that? Shame, there's not a lot of shame for them. Then I think those are all signals that this is a person who has, we don't know if they have the skill set yet in terms of domain expertise, but in terms of their ability to grow on the job, I think looking for that fixed versus growth mindset and, and looking in particular for markers around failure can be very beneficial. Well, that's a great answer. And I love the I love your reference to shame there because I think you're really onto something. I think the evidence of shame is probably one of the strongest indicators of uh, a fixed mindset. I mean, at least I've seen that in my own life. <laughs> That's where I've been stuck. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Like yeah. when, you know, how often do people get triggered and what do they do when that happens? This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This <laughs> costs money. So if you're the people exactly. out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. Well, let's pivot to the idea of this podcast, which is a bold idea. And how can we use the concept or maybe if we're leading a business to your present book, how do we use the concept of an S-curve to stimulate bold ideas in our team? Mm. What a great question. Um, okay, so let's go back to the S. And there, are, and as I mentioned a moment ago, so the way you optimize for innovation on your team is having 70% of your people in the sweet spot, 15 at the low, 15 at the high. So what roles do those people play in terms of coming up with and executing against bold ideas? So the people at the low end of the curve are people who are inexperienced. So that's that's the downside. But the upside is, is that because they're inexperienced, they're not blind through familiarity. So they ask lots of questions like, mm-hmm. why do we do it like this? Those mm-hmm. pesky little three-year-old questions. The, they can be a little bit threatening because the why do we do it like this is sort of why do you do it like this? Yeah, and yeah, totally. therefore, it's not a good idea. Yeah. But those questions, they unlock lots of insight. 
So the first thing I would say is make sure you've got a few people on your team. If you've got a team of 10 people, you want one to two people who are at the low end of their curve and you are making it you're making it possible. Actually, I would say making a requirement that three months in, they say to you, here are the things I've observed that we could maybe do differently. Oh, I love that. Those people are super valuable for you to execute and, and I would say actually discover a bold idea. The second thing is you want about six or seven of your people in the sweet spot and they're important because they are competent. They do know what they're doing. And these are the people that you can give these stretch assignments to where there's the real risk of failure but because, um, but be, but they also want to grow, and so make sure with those people, they're not the problem children. Don't make them one by ignoring them. Give them stuff that pushes them, mm-hmm. and. And I would, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with one of my CEO clients and we were talking about one of his reports and how good she was. And I'm like, are you pushing her? And he's like, uh, like, you need to push her harder. He's like, you're right, I do. Like, so when you really ask your people, how are your, your hypos? Because anybody in the sweet spot, in my opinion, is a hypo. Are you pushing them and giving them friction of a challenge that they need to continue to climb that curve? And then you need about 15% of your people at the high end. They're not going to be the ones, those experts are actually probably not the ones who are going to innovate, but what they do is they provide perspective, they provide the status quo, and they can also um, bring people along. They, They have the tribal memory and they can bring people along who are at the bottom and the sweet spot of the curve. So they play an important role, but the ones who are actually doing the innovating are the ones at the low and the middle um, of the curve. Boy, when you shared that story of your conversation with your CEO client, I, I actually got a little bit of chills here, to be honest, because I'm thinking I have had so many conversations with senior leaders who want the employees to be that self-proficient, and self-sustaining so they don't they don't need to tell them what to do they like that self-directed individual but what you're saying is even those people need to be pushed along to just take the risk that might push them out on the edge and i wonder how much as leaders we we abdicate really taking the performance to a new level by by just saying oh they're self-directed they know what to do they're going to step up at the right time and just do it yeah, so much because I mean, we all know we've all been in that position when you when you are working for someone, um, you there's this sense that I mean the power is asymmetric. I mean it's so asymmetric. They they have the ability to hire and fire you, and so to while it's it's a lovely notion that people are going to be managed able to manage up, and some people are good at it, but lots of people aren't very good at it. So to to believe that your people who are, are going to come to you and say, I need a stretch assignment. In fact, oftentimes the ones who say that they do are the ones who aren't ready for it. Um, the ones who are ready for it are never going to say it. Um, I think we as a manager, and this goes back to this idea of managing our people, leading them up the learning curve, it requires, in many instances, our willingness to give them real stretch assignments, the ones where there's the possibility of failure because otherwise it's not a stretch assignment. Man, Whitney, this is going to sound like some brown nosing, but as a millennial who gets bored from being proficient at something, which constantly feels like I am the guy that organizations don't want, uh, it is so refreshing to hear someone say it's a good thing and not a character flaw. I, 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 I don't know how to make, how to make this sound professional, but I absolutely love you for it. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. 
That's so interesting. So you feel like you're you're saying, why do we do it like this? It's continually perceived as a character flaw. How frustrating that must be. Everywhere you go, because it doesn't matter. It, 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 anywhere you go, if you become proficient, as you're saying, you become bored. Because at some point, what might have taken me 40 hours a week to do, if I'm really good at it, I, there's a good likelihood, especially someone like Larry, who's better at it than I am, we'll probably be efficient enough to do it in five to 10 hours a week because we've been doing it for so long. Now I'm working mm-hmm. a 40 hour a week job and I'm, and I can do it in five to 10 hours. What do I do with those other 30 hours besides Facebook? And if, <laughs> and if, right. and if you're, and if you complain about it or you even ask for other projects or whatever, you're constantly putting leadership in a position where you're almost a threat to them or you're a annoyance to them, a grievance to them or something so you constantly are put in a position where you feel like you have a, uh, I'll actually tell you things I've personally heard. Armin, you need to learn how to be more content. Armin, uh. you need to learn how to not, I, I, and I kid you not, I, I've had a leader tell me this. Uh, Armin, you need to learn how to accept status quo and stop trying to be disruptive for the sake of making things better because it might not be better for the culture. Right. Like I, wow. I, I can wow. keep going and going and going, but wow. just, just sit down and shut up. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. If I, if I had to minimize it into a yeah. sen- set one sentence, yeah. that's what you constantly hear. And, I, and I'm talking churches, corporations, and otherwise. So what you're saying is, is it, it, I, I don't, I, again, I love you for it because it's the first time, like I, I get to be in a position where I live in that sit down and shut up, Armin, and feel like, wow, maybe I don't have a character fraud. Maybe I'm not an immature, insecure little kid that's looking for affirmation or whatever it is that's that's kind of like pushed on me. So again, thank you for it. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you say that. So one of the things I would encourage you to do and is to, um, as you're looking for whatever it is you're going to do next, um, you know, you know, as you go throughout your career, and eventually you're going to be the one who's at the top of the curve from a career perspective, right, is to look for people who, um, whenever you're potentially going to work with someone, look at where the people are that have worked for them in the past. What are they doing? Where have they gone? How does that boss talk about them? Because um, they can tell you what you what they think you want to hear. But the only way you're going to actually know if this person is willing to develop you, willing to give you opportunities for you to say, you know what, I think there's this problem over here that needs to be solved. And we all know that, you know, 50% of the jobs that are going to exist in 10 years don't exist. So let me see if I can come up with a business case for how we can solve that. And they're like, go for it. If you can start ferreting that out, um, then you're more likely to find a boss who's going to make it possible for you to do that. Mm. Wow. So good. And no debt, no extra charge for that. Either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Whitney, where can our listeners learn more about you? And you've got a new book coming out and that is uh, build an A-team, play to their strengths and lead them up the learning curve. That's releasing what, May 1st? Is that right? May 1st. Yep. May 1st, mm. 2018. All right. Awesome. So how can our listeners learn more about you? Well, one thing that um, people might want to do that are listening or thinking, where am I on the learning curve? I actually have a diagnostic. So you can go to WhitneyJohnson.com backslash diagnostic and 
you can download it, take it, um, take the, the test yourself, or it takes like four minutes, but you could also have your team take it and see where your people are on your team. So that's a great starting place. Um, you can obviously reach me at WJ at WhitneyJohnson.com. I shouldn't say obviously, but you can reach me at WJ at WhitneyJohnson.com. And then um, my book, Build an A-Team, you can order it wherever books are sold, whether it's Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, etc. That's awesome. And we'll have all those links in our show notes. Whitney, before we go, I want to ask you one final question. What is your next bold idea? My next bold idea is I want to do uh, build build out my next online course. I've kind of experimented with that a bit, but I want to do it a lot more and and create an online course around these ideas that's truly scalable. I don't know if that's bold, but that's something that I'm thinking about and really trying to trying to figure out. Oh, that's great. Well, no, it's, it's one of those things you're on the bottom end of that S curve, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I am <Okay>. indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, Whitney, thanks again. Another fun episode with you. And, and uh, we're going to refer our listeners back to the reinventure me episode where we got a lot of your backstory and, and all of the personal disruptions, things that you went through. But uh, again, Whitney, thanks for joining us and, and best wishes with the launch of your book and all the stuff that you've got for that. And uh, we're just looking forward to seeing that uh, success of that in the market. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I mean, I don't know any other way to say this professionally either, but I, I think I love Whitney Johnson as well. <laughs> <laughs> Is it okay to have a professional crush? Of course. Okay, good. Exactly. <laughs> well, it better be because <laughs> that's what I'm describing here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, it really is. I, I, I don't want to keep going off in the same rant, but man, it, it, it's infuriating constantly feeling like you're a broken human being because you, you, you want to be challenged, you know? And so for someone to come in and say, hey, no, that kind of disruption is good. It's necessary. It makes you better, not as just as a team, but as an organization. I mean, man, I, I, I don't know how to explain how important and how refreshing and whatever else I might be thinking about right now that it, that, that is because it, it, it's, it's a constant statement, whether they're saying it or not, you're, they're, they're saying you're broken or you're messed up, or you're something, and then someone to come in, no, you're doing the right thing, or it's a good thing, or it could be leveraged, or it could be a strength. Man, it's it's amazing. Thank you. You know, what do you say to that? Totally. I agree. Um, one of the things that really stood out for me with Whitney was just thinking about as a leader in organizations, I think about this with the people that I work with, I think about it for my clients, I think about the situations that they're in. And oftentimes what I think I see a lot in leadership is people that are riding the top of that S-curve. And to your point about people, you know, basically saying, sit down and shut up, mm -hmm. it, it, you may be threatening them because they may just be sitting there at the top and they don't know, it is fearful to try to figure out how do you jump to a new S-curve if you're kind of at the top of your organization. Right. What's your next new thing? Right. And I was just reading an article about Michael Phelps, for instance, you know, the most decorated Olympian of all time, of all time. Yeah. And he's struggling with depression. And he said in, in the article that a lot of Olympic athletes who succeed at that level have that same trouble because it's like, where do you take your game next? You know, yeah. when you're, what when now? you, what's the next new S curve? How do you like repeat something that's that epic? Right. And I think for a lot of people, it's a scary proposition 
to to start something new again, to go somewhere else new again, especially when maybe a lot of accolade and a lot of success has come your way as a consequence of all the effort that you put into something. And now we're talking about disruption. It feels like starting all over again. Right. And that's a, that's daunting and fearful for people. Yeah. And, and what, what, what I like is that she brought up the, uh, Dr. Carol Dweck's fixed mindset versus growth mindset. There's a, there's a Ted talk called the power of belief that this guy did. And the example that he used in that Ted talk was the example of the uh, chess master. Some, I, I don't remember the kid's name. Well, he's in a grown adult now, Bobby something. Am Bobby I, Fisher. But yeah, that's what it was. Um, and uh, the story he shares about him is the most significant thing that ever happened in his life is when he lost a game of chess where he's never lost before. And this is the guy that was beating computer chess games, right? Mm-hmm. And he that that moment was the greatest moment in his life because he realized um, that there's something more to life than always being the expert. And then he decided to try to do something he's never done before. And he got into martial arts. He constantly got beat up and was always at the bottom of the list. But he, he rode that wave of realizing, I don't have to stay in the one thing I'm the expert at. I can try something new. And he became the world champion of whatever this martial arts was. So now the thing this guy constantly talks about is embracing failure and stop living in the, in the one area that you constantly feel the expert in and start, start being challenged so that you can experience the fullness of life. Yeah. Right. You know, I've always admired stories of people who've started their businesses and grown a business or whatever. And for some odd reason, I kind of admire those who've lost it all, you know, end up living out of a car only to do it again. Yeah. And, uh, and because there's something about, you know, this idea of not letting even the most challenging, daunting, you know, fearful situations keep them from climbing up the S curve as Whitney would talk about it. Yeah. I mean, Mark, somebody asked Mark Cuban, uh, well, uh, something along the lines of what would happen if you lost it all? And he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. The most important thing I have is what's in my head. You could take all my money, all my businesses and take them all away. I'm just going to do it again. Just give me a few years. The most important thing I have is it locked in my head. It's not locked in a business or a portfolio. It's me. Yeah. You know, Whitney, <laughs> Whitney mentioned that when somebody's at the top of the S curve, they're likely to say, well, I paid my dues, yeah. but maybe also, you know, it's, I'm collecting my rent, you know, which is that kind of demanding this thing, which is, to, uh, which is, you know, if you don't possess or hold a possession about what you've accomplished and that isn't so tightly held in your life, mm-hmm. then it's easier perhaps for you to make a transition to a new thing. You know, sure. if, you, if you feel like you've, you've reached some level of success and now you want to keep a hold of those trappings of success, mm-hmm. you're likely to be enslaved by them. Right. You know, not free to go on to the new thing. Right. You're, and it's almost like your comfort becomes your jailhouse. It does become your jailhouse. Yeah. And, and, and I think we see that a lot in business and we see that a lot, even in leaders in subtle ways they are like, okay, I'm threatened by the new millennials that are coming up and, and asking why, why yeah. are we doing it this way? Yeah. You know, it's just because that's the way we do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what, from a business development perspective, from someone who tries to sell software as a service, uh, uh, services to a say healthcare company. And this is a true example here. Often what we come against is no matter how good our value proposition is, no matter how timely it is, no matter how much money it'll save them, no matter how much money it will make them, no matter how many uh, efficiencies it'll provide them, no matter how many val- how many different values that we can provide to a company, if the decision makers who are the senior level people want to keep things status quo so they don't feel threatened by not being the expert anymore, 
they will push you out every single time because now all of a sudden the exact thing that they're looking for because whoever the users are saying we need something like this to solve our problem as soon as the solution comes up and they know they can't be the experts they push you out and say no and this is the exact word they use it's too disruptive mm-hmm. how funny is that mm-hmm. i mean and i'm talking multi-billion dollar organizations because the old guard will not allow new better ways of doing something because they can't be the experts well i all I can say is uh, I think Whitney's got her job cut out for her. No doubt. <laughs> Bless she's Whitney. written this book. And listen, you know, as uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll want to pick up Whitney's book. Her her first book, Disrupt Yourself, is really about personal reinvention and, and really about personal disruption and how you can move off that S-curve. And now she's taken that concept and she's applied it to teams in her latest book, Building an A-Team. And you'll want to pick that up. It goes on sale May 1st. We hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, You'll find the show notes, links to Whitney. We'll have her email address and her Twitter and all that on boldideapodcast.com slash six six. And we'd love for you to leave us a comment there. Let us know what you think of the show, any of the comments that you might have, experiences uh, maybe similar to Armin. Those of you millennials that are out there, they're being told to sit down and shut up. This is your time to stand up and send us a comment and let us know about that on the show. Or call us on our show line at 612-568-IDEA, 612-568-4332. And if someone decides to start a... uh, Whitney fan page or groupie page. Let me know. I'll yeah, join yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You got, you got, you got two members already. <laughs> that's right. way, way to go. So uh, that's it for this week. We sure hope you enjoyed the show. And this is Larry Gates and Armin Asadi saying so long, go get them, come up with that bold idea, go make it happen. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the bold idea podcast to get our show notes sent to your inbox. Visit bold idea podcast.com.